Haggai the prophet. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You pray with me. Father, I pray we would do just that this morning. I ask you, Lord, to stop us dead in our tracks that we might consider our ways. May we pause in the hurriedness and the hecticness of our lives to think about you. To answer the questions that you will pose before us this morning. To consider our ways. I pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate these words for us. As we always pray and ask that. Hoping and seeking for you to get deeper into our hearts. And Father, to speak practical words to our minds so that we can walk with You. Lord, as our time in the barn fast comes to a close, I pray that You will bless every moment we share here while filling us with anticipation for there. But most of all, Lord Jesus, we look to Your coming. So bless Your teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was May the 8th, 1993, a big night for Saturday Night Live. It was at that time that the late comedian Chris Farley introduced his arguably funniest character ever. I am Matt Foley, and I am a motivational speaker. I'm a 35-year-old divorcee eating a steady diet of government cheese while living in a van down by the river. If you have not seen that, that sketch, YouTube it, you've got to see it. It's hysterical. Hair slicked back, glasses on, tucking his shirt in back and forth, talking about how to get on the road of life. It's, it's really funny. I cannot do it justice. And i got to tell you, since the very first time I saw Chris Farley perform that, I can't hear the phrase motivational speaker without seeing Matt Foley. <laughs> Living in a van down by the river. Now, there are some good speakers out there, don't get me wrong, but i got to tell you, when it comes to the whole idea of motivational speakers in schools and in businesses and, and yes, even in churches, there's an awful lot of empty words. There's a lot of vain ideas spoken. Empty calories, as it were. Uh, Emotional sugar highs. It seems like that's what motivational speaking is about. Get them charged up, get them pumped up, out the door, woohoo! Where's lunch? Words that do not last, that do not feed, that do not build up. And we hear it all the time in our culture. By the way, speaking of that, Oprah's coming. No, she is. November the 7th. Put it on your calendars. Get your tickets. I know many of you would just love to see her. She's coming to Seattle on her 8-city The Life You Want tour. You're not excited about it. Her guests are Deepak Chopra, Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote the book Eat, Pray, Sleep, Walk Your Dog. I don't know what the title is. Something like that. And uh, Pastor Rob Bell. Reactions here. Wow. Here's the thing. As far as I'm concerned, the only inspiration of lasting value comes from the Holy Spirit of the living God. The only words worth truly listening to and applying to life come from the Word of God Himself. Give me words that last. Give me Jesus. You can have this whole world. I don't care. Give me Jesus, who said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
Only God's Word does not come back empty. It always does what He sends it out to do. And as we open His book this morning, we open to one of the great motivational speakers of Israel's history. He spoke not about living in a van down by the river, but about building a temple up on a mountain. He spoke in such a way that a people who were dull and depressed and despondent were lifted up and got moving. And he does it in a very short amount of time. His name is Haggai. His name in the Hebrew means festival. Uh, We don't really know for sure, but because of his name, there are those who think maybe perhaps he was born on a Jewish festival day. So his mom and dad said, festival, celebrate, party time. We do know that when the children of Israel, when the people of Judah came out of Babylonian captivity and back into the land, that Haggai celebrated the first festival back in the land. But I'm I'm getting a little ahead of myself. 84 years have gone by since last Sunday. (laughs) Where we finish with the last of the pre-exilic prophets. We studied Zephaniah and Habakkuk. Those two at the very tail end. God's final warning coming through these two men. Contemporary prophets, you know, as we've been talking about, they both were prophesying at the same time, back around 612 to 604, somewhere in there, right before the tragedy of 586 B.C., the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning down of the temple, and the people being taken off into captivity. God gave the final warning, gave them every chance, even in the last minute. Remember last Sunday, He said, I will give you a hiding place if you will return to Me. But the words of Habakkuk and Zephaniah went unheeded, and so the people went into captivity. But God, ever faithful, didn't forget His people there. In fact, He sent Ezekiel the prophet into captivity with them that He might prophesy the truths of God's Word and His coming glorious kingdom. He sent Daniel into captivity ahead of time. He was in the first wave as a young man. Do you know the story of Daniel? And he was in the courts of the king of Babylon, serving the king and yet serving God's higher purpose. God did not forget His people. And even before all of that, God spoke of a man who He would stir up to free His people from captivity and send them back into the land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. The Lord says, It is I who says of Cyrus, My shepherd, and he will perform my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Now get this. Isaiah named Cyrus 150 to 200 years before Cyrus's pagan parents gave him that name. His name was already in Scripture. People ask, why do you believe this book? I can give you countless reasons, and that's one of them. The prophecies spoken and fulfilled in the Bible are absolutely stunning, mind-boggling. As we were talking about here at Connect on Friday night, there is no comparison, there is no book on earth that even comes close. You've got to put the Bible on its own shelf at the very top, because you can't compare it with other works of philosophy and, and great thinking of men. It's a remarkable book. And so the Lord says, I want to raise up, I'm going to raise up a guy named Cyrus. Well, guess who defeated Nebuchadnezzar? Cyrus did. First king of Persia after Babylon's wiped out, and Cyrus is the one. Well, let's look at it. Keep your finger in Haggai and turn back to the book of Ezra. It's a little ways back. We haven't been with Ezra in a while, although if you're studying Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, these last three prophets... They're all post-exilic, which means they're all after the captivity, after the exile. And these three ought to be studied and read along with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, who also were post-exilic. Ezra coming back for the people, Nehemiah coming back, building the wall, Esther in Persia, all that happened at the same time, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are prophesying. So in your own study, that's a good way to look at it, is the three historical books and the three prophetic books Altogether. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this would be 538 BC, 
In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, hang on. Cyrus was no prophet. But Cyrus was a politician. And he knew the wisdom of placating his people and placating their gods. I mean, who knows? Maybe this God of the uh, the Jewish people, maybe he's got some power. We don't want to offend him. We'll send the people on back. They can build the temple, and it'll all be copacetic. Well, verse 3, Whoever there is among you of all his people, Cyrus would go on, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. (laughs) And everywhere else as well. Verse 4, Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. 538 B.C. 49,897 Jewish exiles would leave Babylon and make their way back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. So just under 50,000. Now it may sound like a lot, it wasn't. For the number of Jews that were in the exile, that was a paltry amount. But they did go back. A group did head back to the land. They rebuilt the altar. It's one of the first things they did. Went up to the Temple Mount. The temple was gone, completely burned to the ground, not a shred left. But they rebuilt the altar there. And they began to reinstitute the sacrifices that had not been taking place for 70 years. They had that first of the annual festivals of the Jewish people, Sukkot. The Feast of Tabernacles, still today one of the most um, exciting and fun and joyful times on the Jewish calendar. In 536 B.C., in the second year of their homecoming, they laid the foundation for the temple. To both shouts of joy and to weeping. But suddenly, it all came to a screeching halt. The building stopped. The work stopped. Everything was put on hold. You see, the Samaritans were harassing them big time. And the Persian political pressure became great. And so they put away their tools. And discouragement set in. See, Persia told them to cease and desist. And I still mark it as one of my favorite days. It wasn't that day, but when I look back, it is in the history of the bridge, one of my favorite times was when the county tacked the cease and desist order on the back of the barn. Cease and desist meeting. There was such a sense on that day, it was a Friday that I got word about that, such a feeling, a sense among us that the powers that be, not the county, I don't hold it against the county, but the powers that be, the spiritual forces in the unseen places, were trying to put a stop to what God was doing. Here we are all these years later, and guess what? We're about to move into a bigger building. Because God is faithful. But at the time, cease and desist. What do we do? We went into crisis mode. Where are we going to meet? Maybe half can meet in Anacortes, half can meet down in Oak Harbor. What are we going to do, Lord? And the answer was very clear. You don't cease and desist. So we didn't. That Sunday we had church. It's great. We kept doing it. It's even better. And you know the county said, we will never give you a temporary use permit for that barn. We have a temporary use permit for the barn. It's how God works. And I tell you that just to say, when you're discouraged, I know it's hard to get moving. As a matter of fact, with the people of Judah, when they got shut down, they would stay shut down for 16 years. No building. Well, Persia says no. And the Samaritans keep bugging us. So what what can we do? And they entered into the doldrums. And that will happen. In fact, I think worse than than being sick, worse than having an accident, is getting depressed. Or becoming despondent. Because it's so hard just to get moving again. It's almost like you're swimming upstream. You're pushing against the waves. And that's where the people of Judah were. I want to tell you something. When you are in that place, that is the best place to see God's faithfulness shine. Because He remains faithful even when we are faithless. His faithfulness to us, even in those times where we would be shut down, 
His faithfulness is persistent. God says in Isaiah 49, verse 15, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Those of you who have had problems with your parents in the past, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And it's the only thing I'm going to encourage you to smoke at this church. Even your mother, even your father, even your past, there may be people who forget you, who shouldn't forget you. I will not forget you, declares the Lord. Behold, He says, I have inscribed you on the palms of My hands. I like to point out, right next to your name, written on God's hand, is the nail print. That's how important you are to Him. He does not forget. God is faithful. And then He says of Jerusalem, Your walls are continually before Me. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. God's given encouragement to the people in Judah... 150 years, 200 years ahead of time through Isaiah. Don't worry about it. All your detractors, they're going to go away. You just keep doing what I told you to do. And when we are locked in the letdowns and the lethargy of our lives, it's the best place to see and know that Jesus Christ is immutable, unstoppable, irrepressible. You cannot hold Him down. Death couldn't even do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 says, May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. Now the problem with the Jews back in Judah, after all this pressure came down and they put down their tools, the reason why it was so hard to pick them back up again is they really thought the rebuilding of the temple was all on them. And that was their mistake. You see, the orders coming down from Persia were not their problem. They were God's problem. The cease and desist on the back of the barn wasn't my problem. It was God's problem. He's the one who told us to meet here. He's going to have to fix it. And He did. And He does. But the issues seem to be insurmountable. How can we pull this off? How can we rebuild when we have a people near us and a nation distant from us all against us? How can we? And that was the mindset, I believe, that slowed it all down. In 520 B.C., this would be the days of Haggai. He wrote in 520. The architectural designs for the temple rolled up. The building materials piled up, gathering dust. And suddenly, over a span of just three months and 14 days, the length roughly of this fall, Haggai comes on the scene. God sends His word through a prophet, through five brief messages, five different messages in this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins the first message. They came on the first day of what would be September for us, of the month of the lull for the Hebrew people. And on that first day, here comes the message through Haggai, and then chapter 1, verse 24. On the 24th of that same month comes the second message from God. The third message, chapter 2, verse 1, picks it up right there. It came on the 21st of Tishri, which would be October. So two in September, one in October. Message number 4 comes in the 10th verse of chapter 2. It came on the 24th of Kislev, which is the November-December time frame for us. And then the fifth and final message through Haggai comes later that same day. All five messages quickly, one right after another within a very short amount of time, but it worked. Talk about motivational speakers. Haggai spoke the truth of God, this man of few words. In fact, his book is the second shortest in the Hebrew Scriptures, second only to Obadiah, which is just one chapter. And in this short amount of time, with these few words... This man of God spoke the word that got the people off of their couches, out of their houses, and back to the business of building the temple of the Lord. That's impressive. Haggai. Well, check him out. Look in uh, Ezra chapter 5. We see him named there, as the Bible once again confirms its own. Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shiltiel and Jeshua or Joshua the son of Jehozadak or Yozadak, either way it works, 
arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. Skip over to chapter 6. Verse 14. Which tells us the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. See, Cyrus was the first one. The Persian, Darius the Mede, was the second king there over Babylon after they had taken out the Babylonians. You have Cyrus, you have Darius, and then finally Artaxerxes after him. Verse 15, this temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, or 515 B.C. It would take them then 21 years to complete the building of the second temple. 16 years of width, they did nothing. The last five years, they got to work. They got the job done. They worked the problem. And the four major players at that time, and keep this in mind, because we'll see these guys in Haggai, and we'll see them in Zechariah as well. The four major players include the two prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, whose name is just fun to say, and I hope some of you pregnant ladies will name a child Zerubbabel. Just call him Babel for short. Zerubbabel means born in Babylon. We'll talk more about Zerubbabel on Wednesday night because he's a fascinating guy. He's the governor of Judah when they come back. And Zerubbabel is in the direct line of the king David. More on that Wednesday. So you got Zerubbabel and you have Joshua the high priest. Those are the four. They're the major players. Back to Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. I'm going to take you through a little bit of this. I'm not going to do all five of Haggai's messages this morning, just three. We'll save the last two for Wednesday night. In the second year of Darius the king, that's 520 B.C., on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, this may seem a little weird to you, because God told David, the Lord is not a man that he should dwell in a house made of made by hands, right? God doesn't need a house. What do you what do you want to build me a temple for? I don't need a house. I'm God. The earth is my footstool, man. You should see his recliner. And so I always thought, you know, well then the, the temple that's not that's more a thing for man, not really a thing for the Lord. And I think that's to a point correct. But here we have the Lord saying, My house lies desolate. Build it. Get to work. What are you doing? Oh, Lord, I didn't know you wanted to get to work. Okay. Why? I'll show you why. We come to message number one here, and I call it the conflict of interest. Message number one is a conflict of interest. And by the way, it is the greatest conflict of interest in all history. Replayed again and again, like an old Mario game. You know, it's over and over. This conflict of interest, man's interests versus God's interests which seems to be a running theme for humanity. And the irony is that the interests of mankind are intricately tied to the interests of God. But so many people would say, I don't really want anything to do with God and that church stuff. You don't realize that your very interests depend on it. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Verse 5, he says, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. I love how the Lord works. The Lord God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Himself, the way that He works with us as people. See, He's not this divine dictator handing down edicts from on high. He's not firing off arbitrary decrees. Do what I say because I say it. No, what He says is, consider your ways. He is remarkably reasonable. Think about your life, He says. In the Hebrew, literally, it's set your heart on your journey. Set your heart on your journey. 
Why are you here? What's it all for? What's it about? The Lord would ask. Reason the journey through. And I think anybody could do that. Follower of Jesus or not. To pause and go, okay, let me think about that. Let me honestly consider this journey that I'm on. This life thing. Lamentations 3.40, the prophet Jeremiah said, Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13.4, Test yourselves to see if you are of or in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Wait, there's a test? No one told me there was a test. You know that feeling, right? Your head pops off your pillow. Oh, no. That's today. There is a test. It's a very simple test. It is a test with one question in it. Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? That's it. Consider your ways. And who do you say that I am? Jesus says that. Everybody's got to deal with that. We talked about this Friday night at Connect with the young adults. This whole issue of people love to bring questions. They love to throw out smoke screens. They love to debate. And they love to try and get you off your guard, especially when it comes to church and Christianity and all that. Stop debating and start asking this simple question. Who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? I don't care what you think about church. I don't, you know, how you may have been hurt by religion or something. Maybe you've seen people in the name of God do horrific things. Forget about all that for a minute and answer the question. What about Jesus? What do you think of him? Who was he? Who do you say that he is? Christians, I would ask you, is he your Lord and Savior or not? Consider your ways. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you, is He the Lord and Savior or not? It's very simple. Consider your ways. Verse 6. The Lord says, You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. And he's not talking about the IRS there. (laughs) What God is pointing out here is simply this. Do you ever wonder why your life's not working? Why things aren't going well? Now specifically, he's talking to Judah. He's talking to the Jewish people. And across this 16 year period, things are not really doing too well. The, 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 The seed for planting is running out. They're working hard, but it doesn't seem to be getting them anywhere. Everything seems stuck about 16 years ago when we stopped building the temple. And that's God's point. Psalm 127, and we can apply this so easily to our lives. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. See, my kids would tell me that. (laughs) Specifically my teenage son. Hey, it is vain for you to rise up early, Dad. To which I would reply, it is vain for you to retire late. (laughs) The Bible says it's vain to eat the bread of painful labors. For he who gives to his beloved, or he gives to his beloved even in sleep... If you're doing all this stuff, you're doing it vainly if the Lord's not a part of it. And that's the point God is making. And in this epic conflict of interest, what is remarkable, often misunderstood by people, is not only is man's interest bound to the Lord God's, but get this, the Lord is truly interested in man. You are His interest. He does have a concern about you. He does interrupt your life for that very reason. Jesus said, Matthew 6.31, Don't worry. Then saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom 
and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He, he doesn't say you're going to be rich. He doesn't say you're going to prosper magnificently. He says you're going to have food, you're going to have clothes on your back, and you're going to have a roof over your head. I guarantee you that. You just seek the kingdom. Don't worry about the rest. I struggle with that sometimes. Is the Lord my provider or am I? Are your interests in conflict with His? Do your desires run counter to the Lord's? Because what God is getting across to the people in Judah is, if you're in conflict with me, you're in conflict with yourself. If your interests are not my interests, you're hurting yourself. You're not growing what you would grow. You're not providing what you would provide. It's not working. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains. Bring wood. Rebuild the temple. That I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Now understand this. Going back to this whole issue of why does the Lord want a temple? It's not because of divine narcissism. You know, he's not sitting on high going, you know what, all these pagans have a temple, I'd really like one. It's really not fair. So get to work. Come on. I need something to honor me. That's not the point. The point is the people needed a center. They needed a focal point. They needed to come back to worship. They were missing that desperately. Jesus knows... We are at our best, our happiest, our most content, our most joyful when our lives bring Him the glory. When we worship Him, it works. Psalm 42.11 says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? You ever had that conversation with your own brain? Talking to yourself? What are you all bummed out about? Why am I frustrated here? Why am I in despair? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. The help of my countenance, gang, it's a holy facelift. Worship is a holy facelift. The help of my countenance, coming back to the Lord, worshiping the Lord, glorifying Him, things start to work. Despondency starts to decrease. The greatest satisfaction, the deepest fulfillment in life comes when my hands are set to the work that glorifies my God. So verse 9, God says, You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. And the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. My friends, the Lord through Haggai just told Judah, I'm your roadblock. I'm your problem. It's me. The whole reason you can't get enough out of the earth is because of me. The whole reason it's not raining, why there's not morning dew, why you're not making the money you wish you could be making, it's my fault. I'm responsible. My bad. The Lord says, I'm the roadblock. Now, someone might reply, okay, I got two problems. First of all, why doesn't God just leave me alone? I've been asked that question. Perhaps you have as well. Why doesn't God just leave me alone? Why can't He just let me be? You Christians always bringing up Jesus. Why don't you just leave me alone? I'll tell you why God can't leave you alone. He loves you too much. He's a daddy. I cannot leave my kids alone. I'm always hassling them. (laughs) Why? Because I love them. I want the best for them. I've learned a few things in my life. Not a lot, but a few things. And I'm trying to see them through. God loves you. He can't take His eyes off you. That's why He won't leave you alone. He made us to know Him. He made us to consider our way. To understand His glory, His love, His peace. To bask in that. That's what He wants. Okay. Well, if that's true, 
I know of some people who have outwardly rejected God and they seem to be doing just fine. What about them? There's one word that explains why the Lord allows blessings to fall on people who hate Him. Grace. Grace. The same grace that would save someone who gives their life to Jesus for all eternity, the same characteristic of grace that is in the Lord is what blesses the unrighteous person. Now you need to understand this. It's wild to me, but Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a tough one. I mean, when you think about your real enemies, I'm talking about the jerks, the idiots, the ones you don't want to have anything to do with, the ones you've written off, your enemies. Jesus says, love them. No! Yes! No! Yes! Amen! Says the little boy. (laughs) Love them so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? It means if I love my enemies, I start to look like my Father. Because He loves those in opposition to Him. God loves people who hate Him. The atheists, actually the Satanists who are having their convention in Oklahoma... I don't know if you've read about this, but they came from New York and they're having a, a Satanist, they're having a, a black mass in Oklahoma. They sold out all of their tickets. Totally sold out. All 88 tickets. <laughs> they're on a roll. And they're going to have a black mass there in Arizona. Guess what? I read that and I just went, Ugh. and God went, I love them. He loves them. And that's why Jesus says, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That morning of the Black Mass in Oklahoma, God's going to bless them with whatever weather is it is of the day. God's going to be sure there's, there's food for those Satanists. And I, I just I don't get that. But that's my God. That's how deep His love is. And understand this... He blesses those who oppose Him anyway because He knows this is the best they will ever have. I've told you before, for followers of Jesus, this is as bad as it's ever going to be. But for those who oppose God, this is as good as it will ever be. And the Lord in His grace, in His compassion says, you know what, if you have opposed me outright, if you have rejected me completely, if you will not follow me, all the way to the grave. I'm going to bless you in this life because it's all you're going to get. That is my God. But understand this. If the sky is withholding the dew from you, if the earth is withholding produce in your life, if you are a follower of God and things are not going right, guess what? It's either because He's calling on you or He's working on you. Either way, you're on His radar. Either way, He has not forgotten you. And I would rather in this life have hardship and struggle and difficulty my whole life and be sanctified in Jesus than have all the blessings that someone who doesn't know Jesus has. Eric Metaxas, the writer of the book Bonhoeffer, amazing book, was being interviewed this last week. And he made the comment that he doesn't believe Christians should be happy. That was the title of the article, so I had to read it this morning. Christians shouldn't be happy. And he said, I think we've made a mistake. I think we're in error teaching Christians that you should be happy. No, Christians should be joyful. Happy is tied to your circumstances. Joy is far deeper than that and has nothing to do with how life is going. There is joy in the Lord. In fact, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So I'm not here to be happy. But I am to be joyful in the Lord. That's what Eric Metaxas says. I don't know if you agree. I do. Psalm 119.57 says, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, here's message number two, you ready for it? It's big. 
I am with you. That's it. That's the entire prophecy. The second one. I am with you. Short and sweet. Four words. But look at the response. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Message number two, the confirmation of presence. The confirmation of presence. Once I've considered my ways... Once I am out of conflict with the Lord, the next thing I need, and it's the thing I need most desperately, I need to know He's there. I need to know He's with me. That He's really in this this thing that He's called me to. We had an interesting staff meeting this last Wednesday. There were a lot of tears. And, you know, Cheryl's always telling me, Rick, why do you keep making your staff cry? I, I, I... But there were tears and, and there was concern in, in our meeting. Brian was bawling like a baby. I'm like, what's your problem, dude? No, it wasn't him. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I need you to know just a couple of things about that. The reason I mentioned that, this, this group of people who are serving this fellowship so desperately want to serve the Lord right and to serve you well. And it is overwhelming sometimes. To think about, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to take that on? Where do I go from here? I don't know what I'm doing. And we can get so wrapped up in that, it can be overwhelming. And it's not just ministry staff. For any of us, life can get overwhelming sometimes. And I wonder about Haggai and Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Joshua. Did it get overwhelming for them? Imagine you're Haggai and the Lord says, I want you to go to this people and tell them to rebuild the temple. And you know for 16 years they've been doing nothing. Or you're Zerubbabel, the governor, new governor of Judah, back to the land with your 50,000 people and it's just not what it used to be. How are we going to overcome this? It's too big, Lord! I am with you. I am with you. You know what the Lord told us at our staff meeting on Wednesday? The same word came to Brian and I at the same time. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How are we going to make the shift from this barn into that building and, and, and maintain the integrity of God and, and the Scriptures and do what, what we're supposed to do and not lose you know, all the intimacy that, that we love having? How are we going to do that, Lord? I am with you. I've told you before, it's not the barn. It's the Lord. I am with you. You realize Jesus Jesus has given all Christians an insurmountable task. He's given us something to do that is impossible, it's undoable, it's unattainable. I don't even know why He asked us. He said in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What? You have got to be kidding me, Lord. All nations. I mean, maybe on my street I can bring one or two. But all nations? And then he makes it worse. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, I know some people refuse to go into the pond. (laughs) Especially in wintertime. How am I supposed to do that? And he says, teaching them, note this, to observe all that I have commanded you. This is a big book, Jesus. And it's a big world. And you want me to take the big book into the big world and I'm just going to make a big mess. (laughs) It's an impossible task, isn't it? Well, it would be if he left it right there, but he didn't. He said, And I am with you always to the very end of the age. Guess what? That's how we get the job done. It's Christ in you. He's with us. And if I know He's with me in this, I don't worry. I don't freak out. I don't stress. Well, I do. But when I remember He's in me, then I know whatever He has called me to do, He will give me the provision needed to do it. 
His Spirit goes before me. He's behind me. He's got me encompassed on either side. I am with you, declares the Lord. It's the confirmation of His presence. And maybe some of you needed to hear that this morning. I know our entire staff, myself included, needed to be reminded of that this week. I'm with you. That's good news. So the first message is the conflict of interest. The second message is the confirmation of His presence. And I would stop right there, but I did the first message, or the third message, first service, so I don't want to jip you. So let's keep going here. Message number three, which is kind of a crown on these other two. The coming of glory. The coming of glory. Watch this. Verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, wait a minute, do you know how many times Haggai says the word of the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, or the Lord told me to say in this two chapter book? 25 times. 25 times, over and over and over, Haggai makes it clear that God is the one speaking, that this is His word and not Haggai's word. He knows the source of his message. He knows that it is wisdom from above. Perhaps that's why this little book packs such a practical punch among all the minor prophets. But going on, so the word of the Lord came saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of this people saying, Now wait a minute. If we took out that verse and all the times that God repeated... Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people, saying, this would be a one-chapter book. We could save a lot of ink. (laughs) He says that over and over and over, which tells me something else. Haggai knew his audience. He knew the source of his message, and he knew his audience. And I would encourage you in that same way, because, my friends, I do not speak to a non-believer the way I teach you here in the barn. I wouldn't do it. Oh, I would tell the truth and I would speak the gospel. But there are things I say here, and you know if you've been here, that I would never say to a non-believer. I wouldn't go out with the intent to offend. I would go out hoping that my words are salted with grace, that I speak the truth in love. You need to know your audience. You know the source of the message is God Himself. But you know the audience that you're talking to. And you direct your attention to where they're at. I think that's important in evangelism because the Lord will open windows, He'll open doors, He'll give opportunity in different ways. You don't want to bang someone over the head. You want to give them the truth with grace. Amen? Amen. So, here He is speaking to the people. He understands His audience. And He knows His source. And continuing in verse, what, 3? He says, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, by this time, the temple is framed up, probably. There's enough of it built that they can look at it and compare to the way it was. Think about the way it looked. And it wasn't too impressive. Especially for those who had been around at the time of the first temple. For those who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. Huge and magnificent and golden and amazing structure. The old men. The old guys. And some people, that's why some believe that Haggai was born in Judah before the captivity. Went to captivity and then came back. It's because the way he mentions this, those who had seen the temple in its former glory. We don't know for sure. He may have just been born in Babylon. But the point is, the Lord brings this up. Look at my new temple. What do you think? It's nothing like the old one, is it? And He makes the point purposefully. Look at this. He confirms the feelings of the old men 16 years earlier when they laid the foundation. Just the foundation. Well, let me read this to you real quickly. Back in Ezra, in chapter 3, we're told that they laid that foundation. In verse 10, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good! His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. 
Yet, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted for joy. They were weeping, my friends, not out of glad hearts, but out of sorrow. When that foundation was laid, they looked at it and went, that's not it. That's not the way it was. When the building was being framed up, the Lord points it out, it's not like it was, is it? And the old men pined for the glory days. Who doesn't? Who's over 40? (laughs) Who among you over the age of 40 don't from time to time, if we're being honest with ourselves, think back to the way it was? I miss rotary phones. No, I really do, because in the time it took me to dial the number, I could think about what I wanted to say. <laughs> and I know some of you were slow folks with the phone. You know, you would, you would put your finger on the dial and you go... <laughs> and you, you know, you'd follow it all the way back. Well, there were those of us who were a little lighter on our feet. You know, we dial and we wait for it to spin back on its own, thinking that bought us some time. Nowadays, what happens? You pick up your cell phone. Beep, hello. I mean, you're there. There's no time to think. It's stressing me out. I miss the rotary phone. I miss that the phone was hung on the wall. <laughs> You couldn't go anywhere. You know, you'd walk out and that little cord would get stretched out and then it'd be like really long and in everybody's way. But I miss that. I do. I miss going out to dinner with my wife and nobody can call. It's Hayden. I pine for the old days. Being more serious, I know there are a lot of you who look at America 30, 40, 50 years ago and you go, man... I never would have thought we'd have gotten where we are. And you're saddened by it. Like the old men looking at the old, the, the new temple. You're weeping for the, the glory days. Listen, the young men, the young people were praising God and whooping and hollering and shouting and dancing and praising. They thought this was awesome. And they were right. They were right. Because God is always one who tells us, keep looking forward. Keep going forward. That's what Haggai now advises. Verse 4, Now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. One more, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Look forward and stop pining for the way it was. No, America is not what she was. But Jesus is coming. And we have every reason to glory in what God is about to do. Even more than anything God has ever done in the past. Now there is a problem with this. He says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And and we have no instance in Scripture where the Lord filled the second temple with His glory as He did with the first temple, the temple of Solomon. Do we? Or do we? The King James translation of verse 7 in chapter 2 is really good and I think probably a little closer to accurate. It says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory. You could say the desire of all nations... The glory of God did enter that second temple in sandals and human skin. 
that the very presence of Jesus Himself, Jesus went into this temple. Now granted, it was Herod's renovation of the temple, but it was the same one. And Jesus' feet entered that temple. And Jesus was present there. And the glory of God did go into that temple. John says, John 1.14, we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus stood in that temple, Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, and He said, I'd say to you that something greater than the temple is here. The glory of God in Jesus Christ did enter that temple. But a couple of quick things here. Why is He called the desire of nations? Well, some nations seek after power. None is greater than that of Jesus. Some nations, they seek for peace. None is more lasting than the peace of Jesus Christ and what He brings. And so we sing annually, Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us our heavenly home. Now verse 8, going on. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, if you've traveled with us to Israel, you know why I like this verse. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. If you stand up on the Mount of Olives and you look across, west across the Kedron Valley to the Temple Mount today, what you'll see there are two large round protrusions that stand out like zits on a first date. (laughs) The Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock. And what's fascinating about both of these domes is they are made of lead and yet the Dome of the Rock is overlaid with pure gold. The Dome of the Al-Aqsa is overlaid with pure silver. The Lord says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. What I believe He's doing is He's affirming then and now His authority over that place. The temple mount is His. The temple was, is, and forever shall be His. That area, God claimed for Himself. I know it's wild to think in these terms, but God created the earth. The earth is His footstool, and yet Jerusalem is His city, the apple of His eye. And the Temple Mount is the center of Jerusalem. And the Temple is the center of the Temple Mount. And God says, that's where I'm going to meet with you, Israel. That's mine. That area is mine. Verse 9. He says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Now understand this. The second temple that Zerubbabel built, by the motivation, the inspiration of Haggai and Zechariah, could not fulfill this. Not completely. Yes, Jesus would grace its courts. Yes, that alone made for a greater glory. And yes, Jesus offered peace in that place, but the temple didn't know peace for long. This same temple would be torn down, burned to the ground by Rome. And peace would remain elusive. And in addition, He says, I'm going to shake the nations. And all the nations are going to come. The desire of nations will come. And that has not yet happened. What we see here is a promise of God to look forward all the way from 520 B.C. to just beyond our present day. I'm going to do something big here. Something remarkable. And to get this, you've got to get one last thing. When the Lord speaks about this house... Be it Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, Herod's renovation of Zerubbabel's temple, the temple in the tribulation that Antichrist is going to enter and sit in and proclaim himself to be God, the millennial temple, all of this in Scripture, all of it is the house of the Lord. In other words, it's all one in His eyes. That region, that mount, that structure... It's His. And He's clear about that throughout Scripture. Gang, it's all about the Lord being central to His people. Look at a map of Israel today. Where's Jerusalem? Center of the land. 
Where's the Temple Mount? Center of Jerusalem. Where's the Temple? Center of the Temple Mount. Because the Lord, from the very beginning, when He brought the people into the land, would say to them, I want to be in the center of things. I want to be central in your lives. And that message is no different to you and me in the church today. But He's done something remarkable. He's gone way beyond this. Saying, I want to be the centerpiece. Rachel, come on up. There are two more messages in Haggai, as I said. We'll look at those Wednesday. But I wonder, if Haggai was here this morning, what his message to us might be. What motivational message might he bring to inspire the Bridge Fellowship today? Our building's almost ready. I mean, it's really close. We're talking a couple of weeks, maybe? And again, we'll let you know. And honestly, in in the plans of man, I had hoped to bring this message to be the first one in the new building. God had other plans. But I want to tell you on that first Sunday, I want to ask you to remember something. And you've got to remember this. When we move into that building for the first time, we move into an unfinished project. Oh, I know, Rick, there's still going to be some things that need painting and maybe, you know, we'll continue to work on it. I'm not talking about that. We move in to a house that needs building. A temple that needs filling. A far greater work that lies unfinished. And it is not that structure. It's the temple of the Lord. What temple? There's no temple in Jerusalem today. Why? Because God's temple is all over the world. God's temple is everywhere where two or three are gathered together in His name. You are the temple of the Lord. The Lord says we even individually are temples of the Holy Spirit. But bigger than that. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.19, We're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens with the saints. We're of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's the temple we're building. That's the one that matters. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter said, And coming to Jesus as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. (laughs) You are the temple. And the temple is unfinished. It's a tall order. We have a mighty work that we're called to do. question is, are we going to sit there for 16 years in the doldrums? Or are we going to build the temple of the Lord? By His presence. By the power of His Spirit working in and through us. Are we going to build the temple? That's our work. Our motivation is His inspiration, His presence, His glory. Because we know ultimately and finally that in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21-22 says, The Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Praise God. Come, desire of nations, come and fix in us our heavenly home. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we pray to You this morning. Asking first, Father, for Your fellowship here, the Bridge Fellowship, that You will keep our eyes focused on the task at hand. That You'll keep our hands involved and engaged in the work. That You will motivate us by Your Holy Spirit to build the temple until You call us home. Father, I pray for those who this morning have not made a commitment to Jesus, who have not given their lives. I pray, Father, would You cause 
them to consider their ways, to, to set their hearts to this journey, to honestly ask, why am I here and what's this about? Help us to get beyond ourselves and think about the big picture. Father, we pray for salvation to come to Your house. And we ask Your Spirit to work in ways that we cannot work. To attract and to draw and to bring those who are lost. And if it's You this morning, I invite You to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to be in Your household. I want to be one of Yours. I want my life to matter for something. And I come to You for the first time today believing that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I want You as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me my sins. And start me walking with You this day. And for those of you who walk saved, I invite you to pray after me, Father, motivate us. Inspire us, Lord, by Your Holy Word to be messengers of this great truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.